Welcome to No Baller. My name is Chris Rawl, and it is a freaking pleasure to be here this morning with you. On today's show, I'm going to be talking about the Phoenix Suns, the new number one seed in the West. I'm going to be talking about their lack of playoff experience and whether or not that matters. And I'm going to be talking about the fine line between taking your lumps and turning into a playoff loser. All this and more, but first, a word from our sponsor, the one, the only, Traeger Grills. Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. For the first time in many, many moons, we have a new number one seed in the NBA and in the Western Conference of Basketball. Uh, Phoenix Suns, who beat the Jazz on Friday night. It's the third time they've played. It's the third time Phoenix has won. They now both sit at 46 and 18 because of that tiebreaker. Phoenix is the number one seed as of right now. Okay, um, With the playoffs a couple weeks down the road, it's a very good time to start weighing who is a contender, what is a contender, what could be a perceived weakness of this team? What could be a perceived strength of this team? I've gone into the Jazz a lot on this show. And today I want to take the opportunity to talk about the Phoenix Suns because I think they are a very interesting championship contender in their own right. They don't check all the traditional boxes that we identify with a traditional NBA title contender. So I'm going to read you a quote from Seth Partnow from The Athletic, who used to work in the front office of the Milwaukee Bucks to set the stage for this conversation about the Suns. The issue is their lack of playoff experience. In the past, I've been somewhat dismissive of the notion that a team somehow has to go through it to be able to progress deep into the playoffs, but I've come around. Mostly, it was the experience during my time with the Bucks of how different the conference finals were from the first round. In a way, it's like parenthood in that you understand intellectually that life is about to get more difficult, and then you're in it and it's much harder than expected. I've always felt like the biggest edge the 2019 championship Raptors had on us was the collective experience of being there before, end quote. Much like Seth Partnow in the past, I had a, a similar dismissive mindset when it came to this, what to me I perceive to be kind of the macho man attitude. You got to have your experience. You got to take your lumps. And, and that's the way the NBA is structured. You don't just come in and win. You got to go through essentially a baptism by fire. You know, you're young and you lose and you lose some more. And then only through this process of kind of being forged in the heat and the pressure of the NBA playoffs, are you able to then turn into a true player or team that's capable of winning a championship. So I was dismissive of this in the past. And then I kind of had my same moment like Seth Partnow with the Bucks, where he goes, wow, the conference finals are vastly different from the first round. Uh, I feel that because I'm in it with the day-to-day -day with the Bucks, and we weren't as equipped as the Raptors were because they had been there before. I've spoken many times on this show about me as an amateur golfer, and I had a specific episode actually last Monday uh, where I talked about failure and kind of contextualizing that in the broader sports world and in life. I told a story on that show uh, about my very first tournament. And this was one of uh, many baptism by fire moments when it comes to amateur golf, which has a lot of striking parallels to what Seth Partnow is talking about. You can't simulate to the fullest extent what tournament golf is. 
And indeed, there's kind of layers that you go through in order to get to the point where you are engaging with tournament golf itself. You start by playing with your friends. You go and you beef it around and you get better and you go, okay, yeah, I'm a lot better and I could do this or I could do that. And the next stage is, okay, let's put something at stake. Let's bet $10, let's bet $5, let's bet whatever. It doesn't matter the amount. But now you have a new experience uh, and now you're putting and it's a different experience when you have money riding on the outcome of this putt or this swing. That's, that's a whole different ballgame. So now you have people playing for money and you go, okay, I'm kind of going through another little miniature baptism by fire. You get to the point where you go through all these things and you go, I'm pretty good and, and I've withstood this pressure of playing for money and, and now I'm ready to go and play in tournaments and I think that I'm going to do well there. On this show a week ago, I mentioned my first tournament. I'm on a hole, hole number three at Spanish Oaks and a bunch of people are there watching and I whiff the ball. And I'm just like, oh. And as I was telling that story, I kind of left out one detail, which was as I whiffed the ball, I could hear all the people watching like shifting around, whether they were sitting in a cart or standing there next to their uh, push carts. I didn't look up because I was too flummoxed and embarrassed, but I could hear this creaking and this kind of shifting, right? Which at the time, my own perception is like, ah, these are all much better golfers than I. They're probably like smirking at one another and laughing. And this is humiliating even more so. And in retrospect, as I've gotten uh, better at golf, and as I've played in a lot of tournaments, and I've seen other people's baptism by fire moments in their own right, I realized that that was more of a, like, it was more of a passionate response. Uh, where I, I now will see it in present day, and rather than being like, oh, oh that, that's so bad, that guy just missed the ball, I kind of look around and I go, oh, that bums me out because I know that feeling. And what makes it very interesting is in the world of golf, there's no workaround to becoming a, a true tournament golfer who can withstand all of the things that come into that. The, the nerves that you have that you don't have in a casual round. The pressure that you feel just by virtue of paying money and playing in an event that is official. Uh, just the simple way that a course is set up, the pin placement. They're usually in harder locations than they are on traditional days. The the fastness of the greens, the firmness of the course in the greens itself, all of these are ramped up for a tournament. And you can't really simulate that outside of just going into a tournament and running through the ringer of this baptism by fire, okay? So I've lived that over the course of the last few years. And the more time has gone on, I've had a ton of conversations with people who I golf with. And it's one of the most fascinating aspects of golf in my opinion that there is no possible way you can just magically be good, A, at golf, first of all, but then B, at competitive tournament golf. You have to go through these steps to get better. So now I've lived that, and I read a paragraph like I read at the start of this show, and I start engaging with this idea on a professional sports level. And for today's episode, we're obviously going to apply it to the NBA. The Phoenix Suns, they have Chris Paul and Jay Crowder. Chris Paul, who has a lot of playoff experience, some would say that it is a negative and that he carries a lot of playoff baggage with him. I would not be one of those people. And Jay Crowder, who has played in the playoffs and just, he's been around. 
And the rest of their roster is very young. It's Devin Booker, who hasn't been in the playoffs. It's DeAndre Ayton. It's Mikhail Bridges. It's Cam Johnson. It's a lot of young, talented players, but people who have not yet stepped into this alternate realm, this area where you go and it's different. Yeah, you're still playing basketball. You're still shooting on the same rims at the same height, all that kind of stuff. But it's different. And it's even different from the first round to the conference finals. And it's different from the conference finals to the NBA finals. And in the history of the NBA, the vast majority of the time, you have to work through these levels. Very, very rarely you have a team or a player that snaps their fingers and immediately has just ran through these and goes, we're NBA champions. And we didn't necessarily have to go through this grueling process of being baptized by fire this year. And then again, and then again, and then only through that process were we able to win a championship? So as I talk about this, I realize there's a very interesting uh, idea that ties into this idea of going into the playoffs and taking your lumps. Because the way that public perception is shaped and the way that narrative is shaped when it comes to athletes and to teams. We agree for the most part and engage with this idea that I'm talking about. Yes, in the NBA, it's really hard to win as a young, inexperienced team, and you have to take your lumps, and then you win a championship. However, there's a very, very, very fine line to walk. The first part of that is the taking your lumps stage, and you take them, and then in an ideal world, there's the breakthrough moment, and you look back on that journey, and you go, that's how I became a champion, and you indeed win a championship. However, only one team wins a championship every year, and so way more teams and players than not take their lumps and then get to a point where the public kind of turns against them and goes, you're past the stage of taking your lumps. You are now a playoff loser. Chris Paul, who I mentioned earlier, would be a very good example of that. Back early in his career, we all agreed he was taking his lumps. There's a notable moment when he's with the Hornets. They have a great regular season, him and David West. They play the San Antonio Spurs. The Hornets have home court advantage. They take him to game seven. The Spurs end up winning the title that year. Great hard fought series. And we didn't look at it as a negative. We said, Chris Paul's taking his lumps. This team is taking his lumps. This is how they're going to win a title down the road. And that never came to fruition. And indeed, for Chris Paul, it hasn't come to fruition, period, in his entire career. So there's a line that we can't fully identify. But once it's crossed, we really, really go out of our way to kind of piss on the team or player who now has become a playoff loser. There's a couple people who I want to examine in that context. The first is Paul George, famous playoff P, a man who gave himself the nickname playoff P, which is always the worst possible move anybody could do. Never nickname yourself, but that's a whole side bit. Paul George, when he comes onto the scene with the Indiana Pacers, it's during LeBron and the Miami Heat's heyday. And they end up playing the Heat for multiple years in the playoffs, once in the Eastern Conference semis, and then in 2013 in the Eastern Conference finals. If you remember at that time, Paul George was kind of an unknown quantity. He had the talent. We didn't really know what was going on with that team. They were very weird for that era of the NBA. They were just this grinded out uh, defensive chokehold type team. I don't even know how to describe them because they were so bizarre. But they're built around Roy Hibbert, this huge center who would just stand there and they'd funnel everything into him. And on offense, they would try to manufacture points in any way they could. Most of that was on Paul George's shoulders and some of that was on Lance Stevenson's shoulders. Paul George goes against LeBron in 2012 and 2013. They take Miami to game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals in 2013, and Paul George plays awesome. 
the whole series. I remember watching it and just thinking, holy cow, like this guy is already a star and I can't imagine what he's going to do with more seasoning and when they're able to put a little bit better team that makes more sense around him. And everybody at the time agreed with this idea. Paul George, on the trajectory to superstardom, if not already there, and it's only a matter of time before a player like this goes from taking my lumps and baptism by fire to becoming like a true, honest-to-God winner, okay? So then the years start going by, and Indiana gets worse, and Paul George breaks his leg with Team USA in the Olympics, and he's got a year out of that, and then he demands a trade. He goes to Oklahoma City. The next thing we know, they're playing the Utah Jazz in Donovan Mitchell's rookie year, and all Jazz fans will remember this series well. Because it was Mitchell's coming out party kind of on the national scene. And it was also playoff P, the moniker as we know it now, which is a complete throwaway joke. Nobody says playoff P like this guy is now built for the playoffs. We say, yeah, playoff P. Yeah, look at this guy. This series culminates in him going two for 16 in game six with five points against the Utah Jazz. Uh, Joe Ingles completely clowns him. Joe Ingles, who... No offense to Joe Ingles, but when you're talking about levels of stars, Joe Ingles is not on any of the levels. He's just a, a side guy. And yet, he was inside Paul George's head. He was laughing at him. He was smirking at him. He was canning threes. He was whooping up the crowd. I was there for game six, and the place was going bonkers. And every time Paul George was bricking a shot, like, we were just sitting there going, yeah, this guy is not built for this moment. What is going on? Like, he looks so out of sorts and out of his element that it's almost hard to compare that 2013 version of Paul George that was awesome and looked bound for something great into this 2018 version of two for 16 and five points in a closeout game that the Oklahoma City Thunder lose. So he demands a trade from Oklahoma City because he's mad, you know, and the Clippers take him and he gets paired up with Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard, who a great playoff performer in his own right. So now we're going, okay, you know, if there's any scenario where playoff P the joke turns back into playoff P the real 2013 version, it's going to be alongside somebody like this. And yet in last year's playoffs, we see a lot more of what Paul George has become in the playoffs the last five plus years. You know, in successive games against Dallas in round one, he goes four for 17, three for 16, and three for 14. Uh, they win that series because they were a better team. They go on to play Denver. They blow that 3-1 lead. He goes 4 for 16 with 10 points in Game 7 against Denver. There's a very notable moment in the fourth quarter when it's starting to dawn on all the viewers that this is really happening. We didn't think Denver could win another series coming back from 3-1. We didn't think they could beat the Clippers, period, because the Clippers just seemed destined to play the Lakers in the conference finals. And yet, as this realization was dawning in the fourth quarter, Paul George is kind of slinking around and just seems somewhat apathetic. And there's a very famous moment where he gets a corner three when the game is pretty much out of reach and he's wide open and he shoots it and he hits the side of the backboard. And this was pushed around on social media and on talk shows and all that kind of stuff as just a perfect encapsulation of a dude who is, he's gone far beyond taking his lumps and he's turned into the playoff loser, the thing that everybody dreads. For fair or for not, I, I don't know if it's fair. There's a lot of evidence backing up the fact that he has not performed well in the playoffs 
over the last five plus years. We're also talking about a guy who has really notable moments on the positive side within his career. It's interesting how we will call out teams and players for lacking playoff experience. And yet it can also be a negative when you get too much experience. James Harden would be another very good example of this because much in the same vein as Paul George, he came onto the scene with the Oklahoma City Thunder at the start of his career. That famous Young Guns team, him, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, they seem destined for everything. I mean, the, the sheer talent of those three players, even at the time we went, this is, how is the league going to stop this? They're all in their early 20s. They, they make the playoffs and lose in round one to the Lakers and Kobe, but everybody goes, this is a great learning experience. They come roaring back and they end up making the finals. They lose to a much more seasoned LeBron James and Miami Heat team. James Harden had a very rough finals that year. Uh, he was the sixth man off the bench for Oklahoma City. They asked him to guard LeBron at points, and this was LeBron at the absolute peak of his powers. James Harden, as you all know, not a man known for his defense. And so we all kind of just agreed, that's a throwaway. Like, James Harden, I can't really hold him to account for, A, being asked to do something he's not really capable of doing, and B, maybe nobody in the league at the time was capable of doing. And this is also part of taking your lumps. And this team is so young and so promising and seems destined for multiple championships in a way that very few teams have seemed over the course of my lifetime. Like, I don't think we've probably even seen a team that's comparable, where they had players of that high level, all within the same time window, all starting in their early 20s. And yet, you know the story. Playoff failure, playoff failure, for one reason or another. Uh, Oklahoma City gets broken up, Harden's traded. The next thing you know, that team has won no titles. James Harden goes on to the Houston Rockets, where he has a lot of really close calls, some that is based upon just random, simple chance and luck, and others that are on his shoulders where he did not perform up to the expectations that you have for a star in the playoffs. So as the years have gone on with James Harden, he carries probably more than any player in the NBA right now. He carries that weight of he's way past the taking your lump stage, and he's all aboard the this is a playoff loser stage. Now, Harden's interesting because... He's on a team that right now is the gambling favorite to win the NBA title. And there's part of me that finds it very funny that this logic can be unraveled simply by just putting this person on a really good team that is better than anybody. And now he is a playoff success because his team won the title. That's always a very strange idea for me to engage with that people are more than willing to. James Harden could win the NBA title this year. And we all just agree. Yeah. I mean, this could be his, his baptism by fire was the last decade, and, and now here we are. You never really know how those types of narratives are going to be shaped, and you also don't really know sometimes how truthful they actually are. There are teams that are straddling that line. Uh, a very notable one is the one within our state, the Utah Jazz, who I think are starting to pass from the taking your lump stage, which probably coincide with Mitchell's rookie season, and we're getting to the point where public perception is starting to shift somewhat against them, where rather than saying, hey, they're getting more experience. This is good. This is their baptism by fire. This is awesome. We're getting to the point where people go, mm, this style of defense doesn't work in the playoffs. We've seen multiple years. Rudy Gobert and, and the way this team is structured, it's great in the regular season, but you can pick it apart in a seven-game series where teams can just 
put you in a pick and roll over and over, and they can nitpick at the little flaws that you have on your roster in a way that teams cannot and will not do in the regular season. And this ball movement and this offense in this three-point shooting machine, it's really cool in the regular season, but there's a lot less room in the playoffs when it comes to offense. And it's a lot more about what can you grind out of these fourth quarter possessions rather than just swinging the ball around and everybody shooting open threes and it boils down to, did you shoot 40% from three in that game? There's a lot less of that. And that's the perception of this team right now. The Milwaukee Bucks, they're going through a similar thing with them and Giannis. The Philadelphia Sixers, they're going through a similar thing with Simmons and Embiid. I'm talking about all teams that are still pretty young in their development with stars who are very young in their development. Mitchell, Giannis, Embiid, Simmons, all those people. And yet... There's a very fine line, and it doesn't take a lot of time before you pass over from the first stage that we all agree needs to happen. You take your lumps. There's a very fine line between when that happens and we all agree, now you're a playoff loser. Something that's very interesting and something that I try to be aware of as I'm watching and shaping my own opinions of these players and teams. It's notable that the two greatest players of all time have very clearly defined baptism by fire moments. Michael Jordan, uh, who we all agree, one of the greatest winners in the history of, of basketball and sports, 6-0 and in the NBA Finals. That wasn't the narrative for the first eight or so years of his career. And his defining moments came over a three-year span, 1988, 1989, 1990. The Bulls lose every single year to the Detroit Pistons, the bad boy era Pistons. They're clotheslining Jordan. They're hammering him as hard as they can. They create the Jordan rules, which was just, if this guy comes into the paint, you try and decapitate him. And he's not going to want to come in and go against this over and over and over. We will physically dismantle this, this supposed best player in basketball at the time, right? And so they lose three consecutive years. And at the time, the narrative is not, this guy's taking his lumps, uh, we still got room to grow because we're further into Jordan's career. The narrative at the time was, especially by the time we get to 1990 and they lose again in the Eastern Conference Finals to Detroit, a lot of people go, can you really win with this selfish me first score and all he cares about is his stats? And I'm not saying these were fair. I'm saying this is the perception at the time. And the next year, the Bulls come back. They win the title. They win six more titles in the next eight years. And... It's funny to look back on what the popular thought was about Michael Jordan and about the Bulls. And so now we go back and we shape what those moments mean rather than what they meant at the time, which was this guy can't win. Now we look back and go, that's baptism by fire. That's a very clear way that you win in the NBA. And indeed, for the vast majority of teams and players, that's the way you have to win. You have to have that level of adversity. You have to have that level of being able to garner experience and understand how different these specific things are to one another. First round of conference finals, conference finals, NBA finals. And that's how you win. LeBron, the other player that, you know, goes into that all-time debate, he has a very, very, very clearly defined baptism by fire moment as well. Dallas Mavericks, NBA finals, 2011. He had not won an NBA finals up until this point. As much as Jordan was dealing with the narrative of you can't win with this guy, he's just not built for the moment, he's a playoff loser, LeBron was dealing with it even more. And he went to this superstar-laden Heat team, and his first year there, everybody goes, yeah, well, he's going to win, but whatever, this isn't 
I mean, they're just going to win because of it. They play the Mavericks in the finals as favorites, and they lose in six games. And LeBron is not engaged in a way that LeBron normally is. And this was the, for a lot of people, kind of the dance on LeBron's grave moment where they go, this is perfect. This is everything I've been talking about LeBron's career. He is not built for this moment. He is not in the taking your lump stage. He is truly a playoff loser. Whatever that quality that we can't really define within a person or a player about they are ready for a moment, he doesn't have it. And this this proves it to a T, this flame out against the Dallas Mavericks. And a lot of more people than not thought that at the time. And yet LeBron took that and much like Jordan did with the Pistons, where he learned from all these things and he added things to his games and he said, I have to have a different mental approach and I got to do things this way and all that kind of stuff. LeBron came back from that finals and that's what I consider to be the defining moment of LeBron's career. It wasn't any of these high points. It was, you are at your absolute lowest. How do you get better from that? And what do you take away from this new experience that is part of hopefully taking your lumps? How do you, how do you use that and become better and become a champion. So the next year they come back, they beat the Oklahoma City Thunder, like I said, in the finals. And now we look back on that is the baptism by fire moment. This is how LeBron was shaped. This is how LeBron turned into what for the last decade we've considered to be, well, this is the ultimate winner. Like if you want to win, this guy's on your team. He will milk every last ounce out of any roster and win at whatever level that roster allows him to win at. But we will never question whether LeBron is a, a playoff loser ever again. So I'll wrap this all up with how we started. The Phoenix Suns, who I think are going to be a very interesting team to watch as the playoffs start because of everything I've mentioned within this episode. They are in the very clear start of this taking your playoff lump stage. And in fact, the vast majority of their team, again, Crowder and Paul being the only exceptions, they have no lumps. And so they're trying to buck the trend. We're going to get into this new unfamiliar situation. You know, we're playing round one against whoever. Probably a pretty reasonable team based on how the West is shaping up. And what is this new experience like for us? What are these higher pressure games like for us? Uh, with the exception of Paul's playoff baggage, the Suns also don't really have that. So if you're looking for silver linings, you go, mm, if you don't have any playoff baggage... Maybe you don't really know how intense this is and you don't have the past weighing on you, which sometimes I think can kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy for players and teams where they're told so much, you can't succeed, you can't succeed, that in like the, the deepest parts of their soul that they're not going to share with other people, they maybe start believing the theory or the, the perceived reality that ah, maybe I am not good enough for this moment. Maybe when push comes to shove, I'm, I'm at 100% capacity in all these other games, and I'm at one of the best players in the NBA. But maybe in the biggest moments, if I'm Paul George or James Harden or Chris Paul, maybe there's a slight part of me that just is willing to admit that I'm 5% worse or 10% worse or whatever it may be. I'm not saying those things are true, but you never really know until we have all of the information at our disposal, which is why this year's playoffs are going to be very interesting because there's so many teams and players that I mentioned, the Phoenix Suns included, that are looking to become the exceptions to the rule. And they're looking, to bet, they're looking to buck all of the trends that I'm talking about. So I'm going to be watching with great interest 
because in the very near future, we are going to find out what is happening with all of these teams and all of these players.